Welcome to the Equipping Podcast. My name's Karen Henson, and I'm here with my co-host, Nathan Wagnon. What's up? Dude, I am so excited. Did you just call me dude? Yes. That's how excited I am. Today... It is pretty exciting. Today is going to be awesome. Yeah. My two worlds are going to collide. Yeah. So for those of you who don't know, I'm actually a nurse. What? Yeah. So I have that health background, and then I studied theology. So should we call you Curriculum Karen or Nurse Karen? You know, my family actually calls me Nurse Karen. Oh, really? Yeah. Hmm. So I would probably... So I guess we're not on that level yet. We're not on the family (laughs) level yet. You know, maybe we should wait to be there. Whatever. It's all good. So Nathan, tell us a little bit more about who we're going to be talking to today. Yeah, we're talking to Kurt Thompson. He is a psychiatrist and he's written a handful of books and his specialty is at the intersection of discipleship and spiritual formation and neuroscience, which is just all about the brain. So today we are going to be talking about spiritual formation and the brain. I'm actually so excited. (laughs) I can't contain my joy. All right. You guys enjoy this conversation. Today, we are blessed to have with us through Zoom, Dr. Kurt Thompson. He's a psychiatrist in Falls Church, Virginia, which is right outside of Washington, D.C., and is the founder of the Center for Being Known, which is an organization that just equips leaders to think rightly about the intersection between interpersonal neurobiology, Christian spiritual formation, and how that integrates into just vocational creativity. Um, I found out about Kurt because a friend recommended his book, Anatomy of the Soul. And I tackled that book uh, last year and just, it was super helpful. And so I want to just take the opportunity to share him with you guys. So um, he's all, he also has another book called The Soul of Shame. Actually, there's a handful of guys at Watermark right now that are reading that as a tool to help them walk through the season of life that they're in. So we are excited to have Kurt on the call with us today. Kurt, welcome, man. Nathan, thanks so much. It's a pleasure and honor to be with you. So most of the time when people think about discipleship and spiritual formation, which most people probably have more of an idea in discipleship where it's like, oh yeah, that's something that that I go to or I go through a program or I go through some sort of systematized model that moves them through some sort of training. Then, then you might say spiritual formation, and a lot of times people don't even know what that is. But then you say in Anatomy of the Soul, which I thought was really interesting, on page six, that uh, for decades, the perception among many behavioral scientists was that spiritual development is anathema to mental health. This led to a backlash of distrust and fear among people of many faiths against the organized scientific community of mental health researchers and providers, and the reaction was understandable. I think that that little snippet there in your book is getting at what a lot of people probably think about when they think about neuroscience interpersonal neurobiology, the brain, basically. Mm -hmm. And because when you bring this kind of subject up in discipleship conversations, there's at the least there's misunderstanding. And at the most, I think there's probably, like you said in your book, a, a mistrust. And so help us understand that relationship. Why should we care about neuroscience when it comes to discipleship and spiritual formation? Well, Nathan, it's a, it's a great question. And uh, uh, typically when I'm uh, having conversations with people about this very question, I usually invite folks, first of all, to kind of just pause and, and uh, take a step back, kind of 
pan out with a camera, mm. if you will, and recognize that, first of all, if we really believe that we're living in the middle of the biblical grand story in which we are someplace between, we're somewhere between Easter and the appearance of Jesus, mm. if we believe that we're in the middle of that story, then we have to recognize that like any great novel, uh, novels uh, progress, stories progress over time. And, you know, you read one chapter and you think like the good guys are certainly going to lose. <laughs> yeah, Like this is what you think. Yeah. And because this is what, I mean, the, the best stories, like, you know, when you read Tolkien, this is what we, we learned that in these great stories, we come through various periods of time. And one of the things that's really important for us to recognize is that we have been in the middle of a period of time in which modernity, if you will, and what modernity has taught us, even though most of our listeners aren't even aware of this, mm -hmm. uh, that modernity has taught us that there is a certain way to know things, that we come to know what truth is, and we come to the process by which we come to know it and identify it and then hold on to it and prove it, actually is only one way of knowing things. Mm, yeah, that's good. But we have come to believe, uh, without knowing this, of course, we've come to believe that the way we know things is essentially through what we would call the scientific method. Yeah, like scientism or empiricism or something like that. Exactly. Yeah. And we also, in the church, we would do well to actually read our history books, which we probably haven't done as well as we could, because we come to realize that there was a period of time in which there was this divergence, despite the fact that the church of Jesus, especially beginning with the church fathers back literally in the second and third centuries of our history after the church began, are responsible for laying groundwork for how science was even possible in the West. Eventually, we get to certain places where our experience of science and our experience of faith begin to diverge. Now, Descartes was not the only one responsible for this, but, you know, he gave it a pretty good push. And from that time on in the 17th century, we began to separate in our minds this notion of who we are as people of God, our spirituality, all of that, and the physical and or material universe. And so by the time we get to our current time period in 2019, Without even recognizing, we, whether we say we believe it or not, we live as if we're in two different worlds. Yeah. Yeah. So true. We live as if there is the material world, and that world is the world of science, mm -hmm. and that's how we come to know things. Mm -hmm. The other thing that keeps happening is we learn more and more and more and more about the physical or material universe. Mm -hmm. And the more we learn about the physical material universe, the less there is to hang our hats on God as the reason why it's here. Mm. And the material universe continues to encroach upon our spirituality, which is where a lot of the new atheists, you know, the neo-atheism that's currently active kind of gets some of its energy. But I would say that what this all does for us is it just reminds us that St. Paul himself was the one who said from the beginning of time, right, from creation, mankind has known of God's attributes and of God's power and his nature by looking at the world that he's created. Yeah. So we come to know these things by viewing, by engaging, encountering the physical universe. And we've become afraid to do that. We have come to believe that 
all the things that science teaches is not really going to be trusted. It's not of faith. And of course, we've had a fair amount of help with that, with questions about atheism and, yeah. and non-theistic evolution and so forth and so on. What I would probably also say then is that, you know, over the last probably 70 years, certain social research on this is, is demonstrating this. The language of the gospel, the motifs and metaphors that are of the biblical story, uh, no longer mean anything to the common person in the West. Mm-hmm. If you were to ask somebody, what, what is a cross? They would say it's a piece of jewelry. I mean, that's, that's actually a real question asked. And what that means is that for many people who are not commonly connected to faith, the typical language that people in church know about faith means absolutely nothing. Right. Yep. At the same time, the language of science doesn't really mean much to people who are in the pews. Yep. Uh, one of the things that we're discovering by you know, talking about interpersonal neurobiology, neuroscience, the brain and relationship, is that the language that we use to describe things like how the brain works, for instance, is language that finds its reflected home in the biblical narrative, in the mm-hmm. scriptures that mm-hmm. we read. Yeah, yeah. I think one of the things that we're finding is that um, when we talk about neuroscience through the lens of a biblical anthropology, we find not only does uh, it help people make sense of their faith experience, it also energizes it in a way because it gives them tangible, embodied, material ways to live it out. Yep. And I think you hit on a really important point that this connection between science and spirituality just generally makes us as 21st century Americans like uncomfortable. Like it just, there's a tension and a rub that we, that doesn't sit well with us. And we're afraid that science is somehow going to disprove our faith and therefore the spiritual and the physical get separated when God created a physical world. Yeah, totally. I mean, I think too, from a theological standpoint, I mean, you had in the turn of the 20th century, the really the Schleiermacher and guys like that are really pushing forward theological liberalism. Mm. And then at the same time, you're having this more this push of empiricism or scientism where we o- we can only know things as we experience them with the five senses. And so evangelicals or Christians see that. Yeah. And there's almost like a retreat like where we're like, polarized. no, that's bad. So we got to go over here and entrench ourselves. And then it turns into uh, Darrow Miller coined this term called evangelical Gnosticism. It becomes this weird mm. kind of the material is bad. We can't trust it. I just need to become more spiritual. When in reality, as you've said, even what we're learning in science now is that, no, these things are so interrelated. You really can't, even when you try, you can't separate them from one another. I think one of the, one of the striking things for me, I think of the 14th chapter of Acts where Paul is talking to the Lakotians and he's talking about how God sends them rain, God sends them crops, all these things. And he said that for you who have not known anything, God is never left without a witness. And my sense is that for such a time as this, God is going to use his creation to bear witness to the story that we read about in the gospel. And it's interesting to me that once you start applying elements of interpersonal neurobiology, you know, within the lens of a biblical anthropology, you start to see things like, for instance, we come to learn that even though we use science to know things about the brain and relationships, one of the things that we come to learn is that 
that way of knowing is not the only way of knowing. Mm. Moreover, it probably is not the most important way <laughs> right. to know for, for sure, us, yeah. which is, I think, very, I mean, I think the irony won't be lost on us, yeah. right? That science itself, God is going to use our left hemisphere logical linear processor as a way to turn us back to paying attention to what the right hemisphere is really trying to get at, yeah. trying to draw our attention to this question, not of knowing things, but of being known. And this, this doesn't mean that they're pitted against one another, yep. but it does mean that, I mean, I think ultimately, of course, we want to know things as McGilchrist talks about in the master's emissary, uh, the left hemisphere is crucially important but it is important to the extent that it helps us make sense of what we sense. Right. And we're living in a world that has far too long given far too much dominance to that way mm. of being in the world. And I think that has contributed to this kind of division, mm. this sense in which we live in these dual worlds. And we're afraid that if, you know, we get too close to the material world, as you said, Karen, it's going to encroach upon our spirituality. Like it's going to steal God out of the room. Mm. Um, and we'll be kind of left left alone. Yeah, far from it. I mean, I think what we're seeing and, and what has been true all along is that God is going, no, everything in my creation is mine, as you know, as Kuiper yeah. would say. And so integrate it. This is a good transition to, I'd love for you to just walk through, you, you've mentioned some terms just now, the left brain cognitive processor, um, the right brain more affective experiential, and, and how yeah. you said those things are not Hit it against each other. They need to be integrated. And oh, by the way, there is a physiological process by which that happens. So just walk very briefly, high level, just walk us through some basic brain science to help people understand how the brain works. Yeah. So I'd say, I'd say two things that are important to know. One is that you can make this more sophisticated than we're going to here, but I think fundamentally, uh, there's a couple things to know. One is that the brain tends to operate, the central nervous system tends to operate bottom to top and right to left. Mm. By that, we mean that first we sense things and our sensations come primarily through our spinal cord. For your listeners, right? We have a spinal cord and at the top of the spinal cord, we have a brain stem. That brain stem makes us more like reptiles and we get a little more sophisticated because above that then comes our limbic circuitry, which emerge out of those neurons, those brain cells emerge our experience of emotion, the, the first elements of emotion, mm -hmm. which gets us closer to lower mammals or with dogs and so forth. And then we get to the right hemisphere and eventually to the prefrontal cortex mm -hmm. that connects us to higher mammals. And our prefrontal cortex, the very front part of the brain, makes us uniquely human. But the brain tends to move things first toward the right hemisphere from the spinal cord brainstem, large part toward the right hemisphere, and the right hemisphere then moves it to the left so that we can make sense of what we sense, the right hemisphere being that part of the brain in which we literally sense things, nonverbal cues are emergent there. We have a sense of emotion, spatial, visual orientation, those kinds of things. It's our left brain that helps us make sense of things. It's our logical, linear, literal, and linguistic processor. Mm. We need a left brain if we want to change a tire. Yeah, right. But we are changing a tire because we're trying to get someplace. Mm -hmm. 
because we want to do something. And with the thing that we do, we want to tell others and bring others along with that in that process of, of going someplace. And so we see how we sense things bottom to top, and then we make sense of what we sense right to left. And all of these different parts are moving together, mm -hmm. but the brain has different kinds of neurons that function in different ways and they need to be brought together and they are brought together at this level of the prefrontal cortex. Now, what's interesting to me about this is that in order for us to learn how to do this, we can't do this by ourselves. I need to have another brain in the room. Someone else has to be actively engaged with my mind in order for my mind to develop in the way that we're describing. Now, if I don't have relationships, does it mean that my brain won't function at all? No. But relationally, there will be a great number of things that I won't be able to do well. I won't tend to flourish if I'm not in relationship. And so here's where we see this convergence. What we like to say that the mind is an embodied and relational process that is emerging from within and between brains. So mm -hmm. whatever's happening internally for me in the development of my mind is only going to happen in a flourishing way to the extent that my mind is also simultaneously interacting with someone else's mind who is paying attention to me in a posture of what we would call empathy with good limits. The Bible would probably call that agape at the end of the day. Mm. That's what that looks like. Yep. So literally, when we talk about Christian spiritual formation, we are literally talking about the formation of neural network pathways that are bringing together disparate kinds of neurons with different functions, not unlike as it's reflected in the body of Christ, as a way to create something of goodness and beauty. Not just my mind, but also the goodness and beauty that is created between myself and the other. And as we say, the whole notion of, of creation, it's, not, you know, if God had just wanted people, like, just to populate the earth. I mean, he could have just said that, like, mm -hmm. let there be like 8 billion people. Yep. But he didn't do that. Mm -hmm. He's a relational God that is calling us to be formed mm -hmm. through relationships. Yeah. So as an equipping pastor at a church, I am looking at a lot of discipleship methodologies that focus almost solely on the more left brain cognitive type. Hey, we need to get you the right information. And mm -hmm. if we get you the right information, the assumption is, then you will grow. Right. That's a very reductionistic oversimplification of the process of discipleship and spiritual formation. But it's so prevalent today that I really feel like we need to kind of blow that idea up. So what would you say to yeah. somebody who's like that? Like, hey, we just go through this program, just learn these things, left brain, and you'll grow. You'll be formed into Christ. What, what do you say to that? I remind people of the story for those people who remember President Reagan and his wife, Nancy, who was at the time one of the advocates for the kind of emerging movement of just say no to drugs. Yeah, right. I remember that. <laughs> I was in elementary yeah. school. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. You were in elementary school. Well, yeah. don't remind me. I was yeah, not in yeah, elementary yeah, school. Okay. <laughs> um, and I tell people what's so interesting about that is, and what's difficult about that is that the part of the brain that hears and comprehends just say no to drugs has got nothing to do with the part of the brain that does and wants to do the drugs. Mm -hmm. And so just say no to drugs isn't really very effective because it's not talking to the part of the brain 
that actually has anything to do with this. Mm-hmm. And when it comes to spiritual formation, again, it's important for us to recognize that we as a culture have been formed into this largely functional left hemispheric community such that we try to shoehorn information assuming that this is going to be useful for people. When in fact, what you're really trying to do is to try to get the earth to spin in the opposite direction. That's really what you're trying to do. And it's not going to spin that way. Yeah. So I tell people, look, if you're preaching a sermon, it's going to be really important for you to be ultimately a really, really good storyteller. And it's going to be important for you to connect whatever it is that you're preaching about to the viscerally felt, right hemispherically engaged experience that a person has as they listen to you. Otherwise, 30 minutes after they leave your church, unless they have taken copious notes and they plan to go home and study it every day for seven days, like they're going to take a test to take it in and memorize it, within 30 minutes, 97% of what they've heard will be gone. Yeah. You know, we read the Gospels, and uh, Jesus' teaching always followed him doing something in an embodied way. He would do things, and then he would teach. Mm -hmm. And his teaching only makes sense because he's already done something to engage people's right hemisphere, to engage an embodied activity that he's really trying to demonstrate. Yeah, the kingdom of God is like this mustard seed or or bring me the bread and feed you. I'm the bread of life. There's a it's a both and. Exactly. Exactly. I think about John 9, which is one of the stories that we get a lot of mileage out of in the in the book on shame. You know, it's it's interesting to me that the blind guy, you know, he's just minding his own business <laughs> and the next thing you know, like he's getting slapped with mud in his face. Jesus doesn't ask permission. Jesus simply takes action. And it's out of that action that so much comes to be understood. Mm -hmm. As I I tell people, like, we see our lives coming toward us through the windshield, but we only ever understand our lives through the rearview mirror. Mm -hmm. I can only comprehend what is really most true. I only make sense of things after having experienced it. Mm -hmm. And so this is challenging for us who live in a world that is increasingly fast-paced, as if we could get any more fast-paced, but we're going to push the margin on this, that lives increasingly with devices and less with each other. To live with each other requires time and a pace that uh, is is moving at the time and pace that we were made to live at. You can't, if you lacerate your finger, for the most part, you're not going to get that thing to heal in 10 minutes. Mm Mm-hmm. I don't really care how far into the future our technology comes. Like the skin can only do so much. Neurons can only grow so fast. You can't make relationships happen. You can't form people more quickly than they are able to be formed. But with more information and greater speed at accessing it, we tend to equate that expansion with growth. Mm -hmm. And there couldn't be anything further from the truth. I tell people the things that are the most beautiful and the most durable in the world, think Grand Canyon, Mm -hmm. take the longest time to create. Mm -hmm. That's why when it comes to the work as a pastor of spiritual formation, you're really looking for things that are going to give people embodied experiences that they know are going to require a certain amount of work because it's going to it's going to take time to do that. Yeah, which is so counterintuitive in our culture, as you said. 
people are like, man, I, I, I want to be transformed now, you know? And I, right. tell, I typically tell people two things. I either say, one, if you really wanted God to do what you wanted him to do, it would kill you. Mm. And, oh. then number, and then number two, <laughs> um, beautiful. and then also number two, God is not in a hurry. Yeah. He yeah. never has been. Yeah. And, and, uh, and I think that that's what I'm hearing you say is, hey, there's a, if we're really going to understand the process of discipleship, what the Holy Spirit is doing to form us into Christ, that is not a quick fix. Mm-hmm. Number one, because we're fundamentally broken on pretty much every level. Mm-hmm. And, and also God fixing us in the way that's going to be for our good and for the advancement of his kingdom is a slow process. And we're just not used to slow, but we need to get yeah. good at it. Well, and like <laughs> yeah. what you're saying is that true learning is not about information. It's about experience and emotion and yep. community and time. And so to truly right. grasp something, to truly be formed it requires all of those things. Oh, and by the way, your brain is literally changing mm-hmm. a- as you are being formed into Christ. Mm-hmm. And that doesn't happen overnight. Yeah. And we just don't even conceptualize that that is what should be happening as what Romans 12 says, be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Yep. Like that's even more physical than we can imagine, I'm sure. Well, we're going to continue with Kurt next week, continue to dig into this. We hope you've enjoyed this conversation and Jump back on with us next week as we continue this conversation on spiritual formation and the brain. Thanks for listening to the Equipping Podcast. If you like what you heard, then subscribe, tell your friends about it. And if you want to, shoot us an email at equippingpodcast at watermark.org. And join us next week as we continue our conversation with Dr. Kurt Thompson. Peace. Bye.